...deliberately vague during the trial, while the prosecution's fanciful descriptions of his incestuous seduction of his sister, the Queen, had been excruciatingly, pornographically vivid. Boleyn, as handsome as Adonis and proud as Icarus, had defended himself so well against the accusations there had been bets that he would be acquitted. When he was not when he was condemned to die alongside four other men two days later, no one could risk speaking out for a man found guilty of committing such a bestial act. Within the tower's sheltered courtyards, Boleyn's sister, Queen Anne, was executed in a more private setting, before a carefully vetted crowd of around one thousand, which was tiny in comparison to that allowed to gather beyond the walls to watch her brother perish, and now Cromwell and Walter Hungerford. Like Thomas More before her, another political heavyweight in whose destruction Cromwell had been intimately involved, Anne Boleyn had embraced the sixteenth century's veneration for the ars moriendi, the art of dying. The veil between life and death was made permeable by the teachings of Christianity. Everywhere one looked, there was proof of society's lively fascination with the next life. Death was the great moral battleground between one's strengths and weaknesses. The supreme test came when the finite perished and the eternal began. To die well, in a spirit of resignation to the will of God, and without committing a sin against hope, by despairing of what was to come next, was a goal endlessly stressed to the faithful in art, sermons, homilies, and manuals. Within the great basilica of Saint-Denis in Paris, the tomb of King Louis Twelfth and Anne of Brittany, his queen, showed the couple rendered perfect in the stonemason's marble, united atop the monument, their bejeweled hands clasped in prayer, their robes and crowns exquisitely carved. But beneath that sculpture, the craftsman had offered a very different portrait of the royal forms. There, the bodies of the king and queen were shown twisting and writhing in the first stages of putrefaction, their feet bare, their hair uncovered, and their flesh pullulating with the onset of corruption. Throughout Europe, these cadaver tombs, the transi, were commissioned by the rich and the powerful to show their submission to the final destruction of their flesh, and with it the removal of this sinful world's most potent temptations. In corruption they had been born, and so through corruption they could be born again. In the sixteenth century, life was precious, truncated at any moment by plague, war, or one of a thousand ailments that would be rendered treatable in the centuries to come, and so the people embraced it with a rare vitality. By living well, as Anne Boleyn had noted at her trial, also meant dying well. Christians were supposed to die bravely because of the surety of mercy that even the weakest and most sinful was guaranteed by their religion, provided he or she had respected its doctrines and honoured its God. Before they were marched to the hill, Cromwell told Lord Hungerford that, though the breakfast which we are going to be sharp, yet trusting to the mercy of the Lord, we shall have a joyful dinner.
To the overwhelming number of Henry VIII's subjects, Christianity was not a theory. It was not a belief system. It was not one religion among many. It was, more or less, a series of facts, the interpretation of which could be debated, but whose essential truth was inescapable and uncontested. The result of this way of accepting and experiencing their faith was that 16th-century Christians often behaved in ways which were paradoxically far more devout, but also far more relaxed than their modern-day co-religionists. The line between sinners and the flock was not so clearly delineated, because even the worst members of society were still, in one way or the other, almost certainly believing Christians. All men were weak, all men would fail, all men would die, all men could be saved.